Hello, and welcome to Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, storytelling, and directing. I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Oren Kaplan, and today we are talking to Justin Lerner, a director that's had movies at Toronto, Sundance, Telluride, South By, about making independent films and shorts and launching your directing career. He's got a ton of great insight about how to stay true to your own voice and how to navigate making small, unique, dark movies. It's another great one. Cool. But before we get into that, let's talk about what we've been up to. What have you been working on lately? Well, I've been on post in this uh, project I've been doing, but we're up again against each other for another new project. Oh, yeah. We could talk about that. That's good. I, I, I think it's just an example to show our listeners, if you guys exist, that, you know, it's a small pool of people that are directing, you know, like digital stuff and digital series that are reliable and there's a lot of work. So I think that's why we're always like up for up against jobs. each other. I think also like there's a handful of producers who know how to pull off serialized content at this specific budget level. You know, it's for real. There's real money that people are nervous about losing and can't just throw away. But also it's not the same sort of cash that you're dealing with in a studio system. So um, that pool is equally small. And then they call on people like us who they know they can count on to deliver. Right. And Matt and I have had many a debate about whether if you make like a really awesome web series or viral video, if that will segue you into working on awesome TV shows and studio movies and... You know, my personal opinion is that it's not really that easy. It's a little bit more about that one thing that really sparks an interest in someone at, at a higher level that will bring you up as opposed to a, your breadth of work. Right. Um, yeah. No, I th- and I think that's probably pretty true. But also it's nice to be able to, once you have that fire lit, once you've got that buzzy sort of moment that you can show a body of work that proves that you can deliver as well. You know, that you're not just a flash in the pan. The people love flashes and pans all the time. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, we'll talk to Justin a little bit about his thoughts. He, he's kind of in the other direction where he's really working on his voice as an auteur and, and filmmaker and getting a lot of recognition for it. And we'll talk to him about what he does with that recognition and how he is going to parlay it for a long lived career. Thanks for coming to the podcast. Welcome to Just Shoot It, Justin. Thanks. I appreciate you guys moving your studio so close to me. So uh, in addition to being an accomplished filmmaker who has two features that have been to a ton of awesome festivals, Justin also lives across the hall from me. Yeah, it's a neighborly <laughs> podcast here. <laughs> Literally, we ran into each other this morning at the farmer's market, which is when I invited him to the podcast. Or if your front door is open, you can throw something into my front door. It's it, kind Matt of like told me he room. can often smell your farts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, big time, big time. But, but despite it being great for friendships, it's also, I think, you know, when people talk about like, oh, move to L.A., you get to know people. It's the advantages of being around fellow filmmakers. Like, we're literally living and breathing it right now. One good thing about having filmmakers be your neighbors is you can borrow DVDs very easily That's without. True. I mean, I don't really like letting go of mine past like my front door, but since like I can see your front door from mine, I if you ever borrow anything, it, I know where it is. It's okay. The yeah. other irony about like filmmakers like living next to each other is probably if Matt's like, hey, can I shoot a quick scene in your living room? You'd be like, 
No. Actually, <laughs> Matt did actually shoot something in my living room. I, once. I didn't oh, shoot right. in his, even worse. I didn't shoot in his living room. I used it as uh, like green my room? green room. That's like right. Staging. What and were you shooting? We were shooting Squaresville. The, right. the, it was Chrissy and I refer to it as the most stressful day of our lives. Was it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We had a location drop out the morning of, and then we had thrown a party that we throw every year and have for years and years. So our apartment was disgusting. It was the pumpkin carving party. So like literally, which I've been to every year. Every year, pumpkin yeah. guts all over. There's the place. literally there's pumpkin guts all over our floor. Like the cleaner is coming the next day, and we were in the middle of production, so we just couldn't really um, deal with it. And then our location fell out that morning, and then we were like, "Well, what do we do? I guess we do it at our locate at our apartment." <laughs> well, that's something I always struggle with because you know when we all start out, when we're all just shooting our stuff. We like, you know, we're like, well, we can shoot at my house and my grandma's house and my mom's house and we can use my car and we can do this and I'll, and I'll, my friend will make food or whatever. Um, but when you try to make a career out of it, there's like, you know, you quickly learn, like there's right. that line that you have to cross where it's like, okay, now we're serious about this. We're going to like, don't put your own money in it. Don't use your, your own location. And it's not because you're not passionate about it. It's because it, it will quickly like spiral out of control. I don't know. One of my really good friends who I make films with just asked me if they should put, you know, a few hundred thousand into their next movie because they're they just need something in there for other investors to see that they're not the first. And I was like, I don't, I don't think you should. I, I think that there's something about look if you got if you have to like look sure. as a, as an indie filmmaker you tend to put your own money into getting stuff started, whether it's buying, paying your costumes yeah. for, or, or if you're doing like a little pickup shoot or paying for meals and stuff, right. but the exact, like becoming an investor in your own movie, mm -hmm. I feel like there's still some sort of weird stigma on that. I don't know. How do you guys feel about that? Yeah, you know, I remember sitting at a panel and basically the, uh, there was a bunch of different indie, indie producers. They were all really incredible and had done a bunch of different movies. But the thing that I took away that I still really remember and think about all the time is that one of the producers said the thing that independent producers, the skill that is the most important is when you're out raising funds, everyone either wants, if you're a financier, you want to know that the talent is attached. And if you're talent, you want to know that finances are attached. And, and it's so, like a chicken or egg, which one comes first. Right, which one comes first. So the role of the producer, the most important thing, is to know when to lie. Because you have to lie at some point and say, yes, the financing is here, and sign on the talent. And the or financing is always in pending, there's cash. And, and it's weird, it's like it's like this Mexican standoff. Like, right. which one's going to come in first? And so this producer was saying, you have to just lie to someone at some point. And knowing the exact right moment to do that is the most important part of independent <laughs> producing, period. Yeah, I feel like there's always a way to like not be lying. <laughs> sure, but, sure. you know, like the white lie or whatever. You're omitting certain information. There, there is a... Uh, a nice halfway meeting point where the actor can put their little toe in the water uh, without signing on. That can also entice oh, money. Little, little cash. Is that, it's called the LOI, right? Letter, letter of, of intent, intent right? Yes. Which actually legally means absolutely nothing, but has some sort of currency to a, someone looking to put money into your movie is that you can say, hey, this actor has signed a piece of paper in which they say, provided that everything is to my liking on this movie, I will do it. Right. Which is, you know, if any lawyers are listening, knows it's a completely meaningless document. Right. In, in, but in but it, does, it does prove that like, okay, I've, I've talked to this actor. 
they've signed this piece of paper that means that if they don't want to call bullshit, they want to do my movie, but they know that there has to be money there. It's basically. it's the paper equivalent of I think being at a party and having a actor come over and put their hands on your your shoulder and be like I like this director I'd like to work with him on something. I don't <laughs> it's know. It's a little better than that. <laughs> it can be. It can be. Look, okay, so oh, maybe not, maybe not. My first year out of film school, I wrote this high school comedy that ended up never happening and a really cool producer I met who had just graduated from Peter Stark at UC at USC. She was able to find me about I want to say somewhere in the two to $250,000 range from a company in Hong Kong. And all they wanted for an LOI saying they would commit the funds was a letter of intent from this actress that I had been talking to about being one of the roles in the movie because they liked her. She wasn't famous, but she was known. Mm -hmm. And they're like, with an LOI from her, we will then give you an LOI for the 250k to start the movie was going to be somewhere in the one one and a half million dollar right so so then you're armed with hey i've got an someone attached an actor and some money a little bit of money and so then no one feels nervous about being the next person to add a little bit of cash you have one cast member with one small toe in the pool and you have one investor with one small toe in the pool and your 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 goal is to have all the actors and all of the money people who are on opposite sides of the pool in the pool, right. you know, drinking. Swimming. And There's pl- still this fear for investors water. Yeah. that you'll never that you'll spend their money trying to raise the rest of the money. Yeah. Right. So there's like these this always this weirdness of like, well, we're gonna give you two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, but if you don't get to your one and a half million dollars, like we don't want you spending our two hundred and fifty thousand well, dollars. They, they signed up for a one and a half million dollar movie, not a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar movie. Right. Right. Oh, but they can put any strings they want on their money. Sure. Like you can, we're, and they're not even putting it in yet. They're giving you a piece of paper saying, oh, right. you know. <laughs> yeah. And then when we you go back to them, it. they're like, oh, sorry, it's a bad time. You can, or we are not a company anymore, which happens right. sometimes sure, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, more often than it's you It's literally think. like, hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait. And I used to tell my friends who is trying to get his first feature made, he's like, I know, Justin, it's like trying to hit a 100-mile-an-hour fastball in the major leagues. I said, no, it's like trying to hit a 100-mile-an-hour fastball with another baseball, like throwing another baseball at a baseball. Because <laughs> right, right. everything has to time at the right angle and the right spot, and the right. wind has to be a certain way. And I feel like I didn't make that up. I totally stole it from somewhere, but I can't remember where. So, you know, so, Google it. So thanks, ba- baseball analogy master. Yeah. Whoever it is. Um, <laughs> so you mentioned film school. So maybe let's go back for a second and just give you like a, a – more proper intro. So you've made a lot of stuff, but three seminal works that maybe we'll talk about, <laughs> right? Seminal, a, thank a you. A short film at film, in film school that uh, played at Sundance and Telluride, and then a feature that premiered at Toronto. Telluride legitimately and Sundance through a back door. Okay, yeah. and we'll talk about that. So, yeah. and, and your last feature that is in theaters now yeah. premiered at South By Correct. last year. Uh, yeah, last year. And so let's go, let's go back to that short. So how was Kitty Jail? You know, after what you did to me, the only reason you're still walking is because of your mother. But we've been saying prayers for you. Thank you, Daryl. I felt them. And I was praying for you, too. Oh, yeah? For your quick recovery.
Can you control yourself now? You mind if I test you? What you mean? I'm assuming that wasn't like the LOI route. No, no, that was um, my thesis film at UCLA Film School. I, I got my master's at UCLA, and um, they kind of train you to do you do shorts to start start your your time there, and then by your third or fourth year, they they all lead up to everything to culminate in some thesis. And for directing and production students, it's a short, and you're raising money. There's a lot of financial aid and awards for this. Um, I got a, a place called Deluxe to donate free processing and a place called Fuji, rest in peace, uh, that donated free 35-millimeter film. And then I, I used those donations to get eFilm, owned by Deluxe, who was already giving me free processing, to give me a free DI. Like the color and, correction. And, yeah. Yeah, and so I a just, bunch of things you wouldn't need anymore. Yeah, a lot of. Th th I'm going to date myself, but this is 2006. Yeah, sure. All right, and you know, superstar colorist Michael Hatzer, who's amazing, is sitting there coloring my 25 minute short, and I'm getting kicked out at night by Deacons and the Cohen brothers, who are coming in to do night sessions on No Country for Old Men, and I'm just a student, and they're totally using this as a great PR for their relationship with students and it's a total tax write-off at educational. Mm -hmm. Look, I'll take it. And like, that's, it's great that they did it. Like the way that Kodak and Fuji gives film, film students lots of film or did, you know? Right. So I use that. I got New York casting directors to cast cool theater actors. Cause I shot it in my hometown outside of Boston. And I made this like 25 minute short on 35 millimeter at 235 widescreen and with a DI and like, you know, if I'm paying for everything, this movie is a six figure budget, but obviously, you know, I'm not. And friends are crewing it from either New York because I have buddies at NYU at the time and a couple of my friends from, from UCLA, I, I got some, you know, cheap flights out and they stayed at my parents' house and I made it and edited it all through my final year of film school. And got an email from like student outreach at Telluride Film Festival saying, hey, we have the student shorts program. You should all apply because um, they reached out to me and a few other people who did this thing called the Director's Spotlight. That's where they pick like the six to seven films that will play at the DGA at the end of the year. Jeez, what a bummer. You just spend like a hundred grand on <laughs> film school and you're like the eighth film. Yeah, 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 but you do, those ones do play on opening night of like UCLA Festival. They just don't play mm. at the DGA. They play at UCLA's James Bridges Theater. Oh, and right. this is supposed to be like a showcase basically. Correct. It, it's and like they're inviting like hungry agents and managers and yeah. people like that. So there's the like, shitty part is that those seven films are the ones that like they make the big to do on the night and you know they they alert the press and they put you on their dvd that goes out sure, to all the sure. agencies and the management companies so it's tough but yeah i mean i will say this i love film school huge fan i think that they're definitely selling their students on these sorts of programs as being a keystone to their career and i guess in this case that's true right like that way it, it did open doors for you well that dvd found its way to telluride film festival and then everyone on that dvd got invited to apply to the festival sure. so that, two of those films world premiered at telluride film festival where okay maybe 
12 short films are playing. Yeah, I mean, that is pretty incredible. There's, I was about to shit on a little bit harder. But, <laughs> so. Interesting, because I, I feel like for first look, for every story that you heard like that, you know, there's a lot of people who are successful for sure, but maybe didn't hit the jackpot with that sort of experience the same way like premiering at Telluride, Telluride can be a thing for people. Maybe. I mean, look, I got there. Okay, this was my experience. I get invited to Telluride. First of all, I didn't know I got in. They forgot to call me. There was a big, like, fuck up. Here's how I found out. I was sitting there at UCLA at a cafe off campus trying to get all my paperwork in to get my diploma or my MFA degree or whatever. And I get a call from film traffic at Telluride Film Festival. And they're like, where's your film? (laughs) And I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, well... It was supposed to be here by today, and I need to know, are you screening on 35? You, are you screening on on HD? And I go, so who are you? He's like, I'm Chris in film traffic at Telluride. I'm like, so for you to call me to tell me my print is late, that means I will have had to been accepted into your festival, right? He goes, yeah, why? And I go, you're the first person who's <laughs> told me about Telluride. And Put your phone number on your, uh, your submissions, right, guys? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> but like that poor guy in film tra- traffic had to listen to me screaming at the top of my lungs that I got into Telluride. And he's like, all right, dude, well, chill out. I need your... And I go, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll overnight you the print. Right. And you know, it cost me a lot of money. But anyway, so, so a week later, um, from being like sitting there at UCLA, I'm at Telluride with my buddy, Tabu, who his short also got in. And we're drinking in like a little saloon with Werner Herzog, Todd Haynes, and Sean Penn. We were just in film sure. school last yeah. week. Yeah, yeah. And and Telluride has this thing where they don't announce the films until the opening day. Right. But I knew what movies were like coming out for Oscar season. You know, Telluride and Toronto are kind of the 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 kickoff of Oscar season of the fall movies, right? So I'm walking down Main Street and I see Todd Haynes. I'm like, oh, the Bob Dylan movie's here. I see Julian Schnabel, no no joke, in his pajamas walking, walking through the street. I'm like, oh, Diving Bell and the Butterfly's here. And then I see Sean Penn and Werner Herzog. And I'm like, well, I think Into the Wild must be, you know, it was unreal. I, I, I was, and we're one of 15 kids picked to be there with shorts and only six of us are students. And the other shorts in our program are all can Venice short films. Right, the best it, shorts in the world. Oscar-nominated films. They pick 15, you know, so it's like unreal that you're there. And then immediately... Because you have played a Telluride, then you can pretty much call any festival and say, hey, you want to waive your fee? I got into Telluride. And they usually say yes. So, And so is that how you got into Sundance? No, I didn't get into Sundance with that film, even though Jeffrey Gilmore, who mm-hmm. was the head, head of Sundance at the time, was on the blue ribbon panel at UCLA that selected my film to play the director's spotlight at UCLA. Through the grapevine, I heard that he had taken a particular liking to my short. And he taught at UCLA. He taught a producer's program class called The Independent Spirit. So one day after class, I went down to him and I said, hey, I just want to introduce myself. It's a big lecture, so he doesn't like know everyone's name in the class. It's like, you voted my film, um, one of the director's spotlights, and I played Telluride and... And I just wanted so like what the fuck basically no 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 this is before this is before oh, okay. he goes oh my god I really loved your film listen um do you have a DVD of it I'd love to give it to 
one of the shorts programmers and you should apply to Sundance with it. And this is the head of Sundance, right? Right, right. And so when someone like that says you should apply to Sundance, you immediately think like, oh. I was like, oh, God, geez, I'm in, right? right. And then uh, <laughs> I apply and um, nothing. I didn't get in. I didn't get in. And I don't know what happened. Obviously, you know, dude, what I learned later is, you know, he's the head of a festival, but every programmer has their own. You know, he's right. not the shorts programmer. Right. The head of a festival can love your film, but it's the programmers that right. really, you know. The way I got in is that I won another festival over the course of that year that took all of its winners and mm -hmm. played them in a special like day in Park City during the festival. Mm -hmm. So I got to go to Sundance, paid for by that festival. Uh, it was amazing. Got it. It was a so, so uh, it was a separate festival at Sundance during they Sundance. they rent out like, like Slam Dance or like also there's plenty of like awesome. It's weird though because they are they're they're not part of the festival, but they are affiliated in the sense that they do outreach with the festival to get like speakers to come in and screen them. So like for my year, Kerry Fukunaga was there mm -hmm. with Sin Nombre, and they brought Kerry Fukunaga in, and he it's more of like a forum for mm -hmm. students. I see. And it was called it was called at the time the Angeles uh, Student Film Festival. Okay. And I went, they paid for me to go. I lived with two skiing nuns in a house right outside of Park City. It was amazing. They Were they me, hot by any chance? No. Come on. Man. They're oh, none. They're bummer. like older, nice older ladies. Yeah, but they ski. I don't know. Did they skied, yeah. Um you have that, to be, you can be a young nun, right? Yeah, I guess yeah, you can. Sure. Yeah, like that Ida film. Yeah, right. or, or Julie Andrews. Yeah, there you go. Right. So here's the thing. I got to go up to Park City, paid for by a film festival. I got to screen my film in Park City during Sundance at the at the Windrider Forum, which is this forum for students oh, yeah. all I know over. That. I yeah, know the Windrider Forum. Yeah. Okay. So I I got all that stuff, and I got to walk around Sundance for a week, saying I had a film playing, a short film playing, which is technically true. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually met the investors who ended up producing my first feature at that forum they saw the movie at sundance while i was there oh so, cool so that's how that that happened but so, so it, that was a year after i'd premiered the film i tell you right i tell you right so and did you have a project ready to pitch them kind of i had a an idea that i it, went and ran and, and made was that idea girlfriend your first feature? it was great so so <laughs> fast forward a tiny bit Justin and I move in across the hall from each other about a week apart. And he's like, oh, I've got this movie. It's playing at UCLA. It's called Girlfriend. My wife is like, oh, we should go see it's it. It's my first feature. It's, it's yeah. Justin's first feature. He's very excited about it. We're just becoming friends. And I was like, okay, great. We've all been in this situation where you go see somebody's film and it's a bit of a bummer because it's not very good. And this is my example of the opposite where I was like, oh, thank God. Because you're going to have so to live relieved. across from me. For like, I don't have to be like, ah, the sound was so good in that movie, Justin. <laughs> it looks amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it looks amazing. That's have you ever gotten one. this one? Have you ever gotten, like, congrats for making a movie? It's really hard to do. <laughs> yeah, which is legit, which is legit. But also, like, <laughs> it, it is legit. It maybe means, uh, oh, hey, I didn't like your movie Dude, so much. you made a movie. Yeah, yeah. That's more than a lot of people can say. <laughs> yeah. Am I alone in loving when people hate my films? Yeah. Okay, the eh, it was all right. That that's kind of mm -hmm. hurtful. If someone really doesn't like it, like really like, well, if they're offended by it, it's cool. But not if they offended. Were, thought it was boring. Not offended, well, but just like my greatest joy is like inspiring and getting people really excited by myself. But my second greatest joy is reading like a one star Netflix review where I've really pissed them off to the point where they're like, 
you know, because girlfriend has yeah. a lot of things in it that a lot of people, it's not for people the, have very strong feelings about it. Yeah, and we should clarify real quick, <laughs> Justin, you have uh, very divisive films, right? Like you the intentionally two, so. Int- intentionally so. So the first one is about a boy with Down syndrome who is being manipulated by the woman that he has a crush on. And then the other one is like a incest movie. A movie that contains a incestuous relationship between two first cousins. Yes. Yes. So so intentionally they're provocative and designed so that not everyone is going to enjoy them. It's, it's the opposite of a four quadrant film. Yeah. It's I mean, like a very But there's a huge there's a huge strategy there that I think it's a little bit more complicated than just provocation it's, sure sure which which but you're right that's but, part of it i mean i do the thing where and in a very intentionally polarizing way where you're writing and making something for just one person mm-hmm. like vonnegut says write for just one person so it feels like it has a voice and it's aimed directly at someone so the people that it's for this is what one of my buddies at ucla said he's like when he's watched the one of the first early cuts of Automatic Hate, which is the new film that's coming out about the two cousins, he said, "Look, it's very specifically for certain people. For the people that like it, it's really for them. If they're into taking this journey with you, it's not going to be for everyone." You, you mean for perverts or yes? <laughs> no, in a way, yeah, yeah. If you take the like, if you take the the broader sense of what a pervert is, then yes, sure. it is. He's like. It's not going to be for everyone, Justin, but the people that it's for, it's really for them. Mm-hmm. And in the way of like, there's a certain kind of film out there that I don't feel is being made very much. And I'm trying to do those. Wait, so just to rewind and try to maybe glean some lessons or, or helpful <laughs> hints out of this whole story. Like when you decide to tell a story like this, are you, I just watched this episode of Girls the other night and I'm like, Literally every scene here is designed to make me feel like, holy cow, I can't believe they just did that, right? There's like, there was an episode where Lena Dunham's boyfriend has all these naked pictures of his exes because he wants to masturbate to them because he doesn't think the naked pictures he has of Lena Dunham are good. They're all too goofy. So then she has like her friends take all these naked photos of her, like at the coffee shop while they're working because she just wants to get them made, you know? And it's Mm -hmm. like, it's a very Lena Dunham thing, like- like you're trying to shock us. So w- when you're formulating these stories, is that part of the goal? Like, like are you trying to find stories trying- that will make people feel uncomfortable? Yes, but that's born out of a desire to tell stories that I haven't seen yet. And that will not be easily swallowed and then just digested and forgotten about. My greatest fear is I can make something that just sits on a shelf and it's the same as everything else on the shelf. I'd rather take a risk and do something that is different than we've seen and will provoke a very strong reaction so that it's just memorable than just be another movie that hits a couple quadrants that we've seen before and be like, oh, good performance, but it's just another spy movie or it's just another romantic comedy. No offense to any of those genres. Right. They get a lot of... Yes, lack for being like just each other. Generic, right? Yeah. right? I'm just trying, just because of how hard it is to make films and how much you sacrifice personally, emotionally, psychologically, and financially to make them, I want them to be not like the other ones. Right. So uh, how do you come up with an idea, Down syndrome, boy, sexual relationship with older, manipulative woman? Well, 
each story comes has a different origin. I actually grew up with a kid named Evan Snyder who has Down syndrome and has had two goals in his life. One was to marry a girl with, who does not have Down syndrome, and the other one was to become a famous actor. So I kind of fused those together into a movie, and the movie, the idea for the movie was born out of the 2009 financial crisis that was happening when I was thinking of it and figuring out how a guy like Evan could maybe use his situation and money inheritance in order to get that dream to come true and the kind of stories I like to tell anyway. So that kind of came out of the guy that I knew and knowing that this is the kind of story I like to tell. And did he play? Yes, he did. Your main guy? Yeah, my buddy Evan played Evan, yeah. I thought that that money was from Simon's dad. It was mine. I wanted to give it to you. You know what happened in my house yesterday? Can that be our secret? Yes, it will. Yeah, so you won't you won't tell anybody else, just just between you and me, okay? I need you to ask Candy. She's had any other boyfriends besides me. Why? Is yeah. is girlfriends available on Netflix still or no? It disc. Uh, Hulu Plus and Amazon for free. Amazon Prime and Hulu Plus, if you have either of those. It's 2010, starring Evan Snyder, my buddy, Jackson Rathbone from the Twilight movies, and Shannon Woodward from Many Things, and Amanda Plummer. Oh, cool. Also, you you shot Girlfriend in Your Hometown. Yes. Which I, I always use as the example of like when people talk about getting out of L.A. to shoot their first feature. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like you told me a story once about cops fighting over who got to be in the movie. Yes. Which is the exact opposite of what you deal with here where cops are either shutting you down for not having permits or charging you hundreds yeah. of dollars to we, shut down a street. We needed two cops for a scene. We had six show up and they were all trying to explain how they could get more cops in the shot because... Yeah. It was right. And then they normally just, we'd have six cops for a case like yeah, this. Yeah, they'd be like, if there's a missing person, there's going to be two at the door. One will be like <laughs> circling around. And we're like, no, dude, we need two cops. But and he's like, well, we'll just stand here if you need a shot of a cop car going by really fast. Or like, do you want us to close off a street or something? Was, yeah. That's, that's, yeah. That's the hometown advantage of shooting. Yeah. And this is a very, very small hometown. Uh, seven miles high, I think, by two miles wide. Yeah. The other great thing is, you know, we didn't need permits for anything. You just just shoot, and then if someone comes and yells, you're like, yeah, call the cops. They're here hanging out. <laughs> or you say, oh, we're making a movie, and they say, oh, do you want cookies? Yeah, exactly. Right. It's, it's, it's one of those things. But this movie was shot. I mean, our budget was you know under $200,000. And did like you design it to take place in a small, small town? Yeah, a small town that was hit hard by you know the housing collapse and the financial crisis. So. Yeah, and most of the crew stayed at my house, my parents' house. We shot a couple scenes in our basement. The local places I grew up going to just opened their doors. And this is uh, primarily UCLA or NYU crew, correct? Mostly UCLA crew, I think. We got some people from New York and Boston to come in and help, but yeah. And this is basically right after you've graduated. Okay, so this, this, is, this is what's crazy. So I'd spent a year doing festivals, with the short film. With the short film. Did not get into Sundance 2008, but got into like 40 or 50 over the course of that year. I didn't go to all of them, but I went to a bunch. 
And then we win the Angeles Festival and then get to screen at Sundance 2009. By that time of my screening, I met this husband and wife who ended up finding money for the first feature. So this whole time you're like, okay, I have this short, I have all this buzz, I'm winning all these festivals, I'm meeting all these people, yeah. I gotta have a feature ready. I had one and go. it wasn't, it was the one that um, I got the oh, Hong the high Kong, school one. The high school one that just didn't, and I'm glad it didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't for me, I just had written it and it was the only thing I had that was written. Mm -hmm. But I was going to films with these, the, these two aspiring um, producers, husband and wife, at Sundance and we're like, man, we could probably come up with something this good. Like this was the year Precious one. Mm -hmm. Evan, the kid with Down syndrome in my film, he was a small part in my short and they loved him. They're like, he steals the movie. And I was like, well, what if I just came up with an idea that was based on him for the movie? And he's like, I would find you money for that. So we just talked about it during Sundance. I go away for two months. I come up with a 75 page script and no joking. We had the money by May. We were casting by June, July. By August, I was back home pre-production and by September we were shooting the movie and we we shot till the very first days of October 2010 so this was wait no sorry 2009 I'm sorry 2009 and then we were editing through 2010 and like a year to the week from physical production starting we were sitting at Toronto Film Festival the financing was the fastest thing which is not always the case like on my next right. movie it was the slowest thing. and it helped that it was two hundred thousand dollars correct it was one investor Right. Yes. <laughs> and you managed, because it's a great idea and you had all this buzz, you managed to pull together a really exciting cast, right? Yeah. And, you know, the lead role, other than the young man with Down syndrome, was a young single mother. And there aren't many at this time, too. This is a time when there weren't as many indie films being made and especially ones with good female roles. So we read lot of people for that and we got our pick of of people and the producers that i found were friends with jackson rathbone who had a lot of buzz from the twilight movies and i was friend i had met amanda Plummer at a dinner party and i mean it's a really small role but you know just have amanda Plummer, honey bunny in your sure. film it, a really small role but also like pretty powerful an important know? one yeah like without ruining the movie yeah. her presence in the movie even though she's in very few scenes is like sets the whole story up right and right so it's a juicy role even still exactly so, so how many days should, did amanda shoot? three days yeah, and perfect. i knew she's also actor bait in sense that like when we said we had amanda Plummer on it brought us some legitimacy that we did not have before right and knowing that she's into films not for like we paid her oh, i mean this is terrible we, we sag ultra low at that point was a hundred dollars a day and when we called her manager at the time and told her manager that that's what we're paying emmy winning amanda Plummer, golden globe nominee you know amanda Plummer, uh honey bunny from pulp fiction fisher king <laughs> and and I think we almost made her, her manager crash his car. <laughs> like, and you know, and, but, but she was, she called him up. She's like, don't mess with them. I'm doing this movie. I love Justin and I love this script. And, and did you show her your short? And yeah. Her? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We had developed a friendship where I was showing her not only my stuff, but like things you liked and things you, we would watch we movies. Together. By. I, yeah. We'd watch movies together. She's oh. a cinephile to like the nth degree. But after I showed her the, my short, she had written me a really beautiful note saying she'd love to work with me on something. But she's just one of these rare 
beautiful That's people. Awesome. Like yeah. she is a she's a she's a find. Like and, and so so sorry. Back to the manager thing. Just yes. because I'm curious about this. <laughs> sorry, um, we're skipping all around. No, no, no. That's, that's okay. So so the manager is not really into it. Did you have to reach out to Amanda and say, "Hey, I'm like your manager." Does you know? Yes. Yeah. yeah, he had said no, which basically. I find is like true nine out of ten times with actors. Yeah, <laughs> how many times has an actor been like, "Yeah, I'll be in your whatever project," and then you talk to their agent and they're like, "No, they're not going to be in your project." A hundred percent of the time. Right? Look, like I, on this last film, we had uh, someone who, when I met with her twice, she was like, "I'm in. I'm doing this movie. I don't care. I know it doesn't pay very well. She's used to getting pretty big paychecks." And I found out through the grapevine that her agent didn't want her to do the movie and told her that she had a conflict with our dates and we didn't have dates mm-hmm. on the film. So you just find, you find out that the reps at all points, a lot of the time, I'm not saying all of them, some are very supportive, but there are some that will basically, if the actor's into it, find a way to make it so that they can't do it. Yeah, well, I mean, I think when you're dealing with people who are used to making tons of money, like they want to keep there's opportunity cost in their minds, right? Right. So, yeah. this person can do a movie for $200 a day for right. 2 months or they can be auditioning for big things for those right. 2 months. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and they just get one pilot and they're they could be making millions of dollars. Right. Okay, so you premiere in Toronto with Girlfriend. Yeah. And in in the, the section called Discovery, which is like, you know, first or second Features. And do you have an agent and a manager by this point? No, I have neither at this point. I well. So is your strategy like I'm going to Toronto? Do you have a plan, or are you just like I'm just going to see what happens? I'll get repped. I'll get a next project. I'll well, get it's weird because the short at Telluride got me reps, so to speak. I mean, I got a lawyer, an entertainment lawyer, and an agency that sent things out on my behalf but couldn't really didn't really want to call me a client at that point called me like a development what was that hip, hip pocket hip pocketed yeah yeah meaning like i was there they sent out scripts for me they sent me projects but i wasn't like an official client of right. some if sort. something big happened with you they'd rep you yeah but, then, yeah. but they're not gonna go out of their way for you so or and that, maybe that. maybe one agent is like keeping an eye out for you but you're not officially yes that was the exactly list. the case for me yeah. especially just coming out of film school so you can which is i think a really great position to be in in a lot of ways yeah you, you can know? you can benefit from the allegiance of the agency right in right. a way yeah and someone's there to negotiate a deal for you and if you have a passionate agent out there you know, keeping an eye out on those smaller projects. It's a, in a sense, it's a way of getting around the requirements or interests of a larger agency. Larger agencies, you know, they just want to deal with, you know, ten percent of millions and millions mm-hmm. of dollars because their whole team is behind you, right? Like when you're right. signed with one agent, you're signed with all of them in a, in a sense, right? Sometimes, yeah. But with a hip pocketed situation, it's like someone junior is going to keep their eye out for smaller projects and it's not going to burn a ton of resources. So it's okay for you to be developmental. Right. Okay, so I go to Toronto and the film plays really well. Like we get a really nice review in The Hollywood Reporter and Evan is like on the front page of the rap being I mean, he's pretty incredible in the movie for sure. I mean, just as far as like the, he, you know, this was our publicity team, but like he's dubbed as the first actor with Down syndrome to star in a feature film, American feature film. There's been others in other countries. Mm -hmm. Usually people with down, actors with Down syndromes are not the lead role Mm -hmm. in like a, unless the film tends to be like just about 
the disability, which this is not. This is like a dark, like rural melodrama. <laughs> but yeah, so so we had that going for us. It was a really buzzy. He did Entertainment Tonight Canada. He did. I mean, sorry, this is a totally ignorant question, but is it? Do you work with him in a different way, or is it just oh, like yeah. working with a no, 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 no? Actor? Working with Evan was a different. I mean, he he functions. He's he's a very high functioning man with Down syndrome, but being his first film and you know not yeah which is already hard for anyone anyone starring in the first yeah. carrying a whole movie it's funny how much he became just like his hangups became typical actor hangups but just enhanced by like two to three times he got really bent out of shape like shooting out of order and I'd have to explain to him, like, okay, so you just shot that scene. He's like, when's the scene where I get to, like, scream it? I go, we're shooting that in two weeks. But once he got that, by the end of the shoot, he was like, am I in focus? Where's my mark? Like, it was unreal. Uh, but he would do what actors do, but just intensified. So, like, if he had a really emotional scene, he would take several hours to come down out of the place because he'd really go there. But because of his disability, he would allow his emotions to actually go where he would in the scene temporarily forget that there were cameras there. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he was able to access his emotions so intensely, which was amazing to see because the best actors in the world try to get to that place where they are actually temporarily feeling it as if it's really happening. And do you think this is something that you got him to do or that he just had an instinct for? I think it's a combination. It was giving, I mean, he's not, not taking anything away from him, but like we put him in that, that environment. But then, man, you know, sometimes not wanting the scene to go a certain way because he's upset because he's so into the story that he wants to get the girl. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Evan, you can't get the girl. This is, this is how the movie's going. And having to negotiate with him that he has to say my lines of dialogue mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, he'd get really into it. He's like, well, why can't I just scream at him? And I go, because that's not what in the, it's in the script. And I found myself having to defend the script a lot and to the point where me and his mother would have to be like, Evan, you're not allowed to rewrite the script. If you want to go off script and stay in the character, we can talk about that because I'm down if you want to. And he went off script, but sometimes in a good way, but then sometimes wanting to rewrite the story because so he could get the girl or something like that. Right. <laughs> it and, uh, was sorry, different. And, and this, is a, this is a weird technical question. Yeah. But are you guys shooting film at this point? No, or? we're shooting on the red. Okay, great. Yeah. And there so are, you're not burning film at least, I'm not right? burning film, but we're burning the day sometimes. Sure, daylight. With so, him yeah. getting, we have got one like five to six minute take where he's just unable to get one line. He's got like a mental... Like we, we all get them, right? Like sometimes you get the giggles or something. Like he just couldn't say one line. And we're sitting there literally giving him line readings and he finally gets it once. And it's we're tired, the sun's coming up, it's a night shoot, it's that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But overall, I found that my approach to directing him was very similar to how I direct everyone else. It's just I had to, it was more time mm-hmm. involved. So I definitely feel like the other performances didn't suffer necessarily, but I didn't get to give the other actors as much on set because I was really mm-hmm. attending to him. Well, which is also probably pretty typically the case with any lead actor. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's that relationship as well, right? Well, I mean, on my new film with Adelaide Clemens, it just was like, I really felt like the more I talked to her, the less, less the scene, the more the scene suffered. Mm-hmm. So she was that person that I could just literally set her just off. Get out of the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And but the thing is with Joseph Cross, the other actor, 
same thing except for hours and hours and hours of talking before. Mm. And I love that. And then very little talking on set. So let's talk a little bit more about Automatic Hate. So that's the film that you've just recently completed mm-hmm. and then is still in theaters? Yeah, I mean, it's it just it's no longer in LA, unfortunately. But we just went to San Francisco and Chicago and I heard this week we're going to get a small theatrical in Boston and maybe Denver. A lot of different little mm-hmm. little cities and towns. Did you get automatic hate off of girlfriend, like the money and the actors and all that stuff? Yeah, it definitely helped. It definitely have to help to have a feature that people can see. The funny thing about the automatic hate is that girlfriend played Toronto. We sold to a company that ended up not purchasing it. There was a little bit of I didn't even know how much I can legally say, but let's just say that it didn't go well after after Toronto and they purchased. We ended up not going with them and uh, continuing to play festivals for that year. Once we play those festivals, you know, we won a couple and got nominated for a Gotham award. Basically films that have played the festival circuit. It's all of the ones that have won the audience award at those festivals and narrow it down to like 15 and then they go down to five and those five get suited up and go to New York for the awards as nominees. And um, we won the award. And that brought this little heat window of another month or so where we'd been doing festivals. We had played Toronto an entire year ago. Mm-hmm. And finally, we got Strand releasing to put us out based on a Gotham win and a little bit more mm-hmm. heat. And then I got a manager off of it. A manager signed me after seeing it. And he got the movie and my next script to an awesome producer who, you know, you go to the top of people's pile when you've just won an award for like a week, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I, well, I think the other thing that's important to, to point out though is like you you were at the top of the pile, right? Things were going great. You signed with a distributor. It went sour. And then you still bounced back. Well, we right? just kept playing film festivals. We're like, what else were we going to do? Sure, like, sure. Yeah, but, yeah. It, but it would be easy to be like, well, we lost our chance. Yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. What what sucked about the Toronto thing is there was other distributors who were interested in us at Toronto that then went away because right. we had engaged with one that didn't work out. So the side question to all this is like how are you paying your rent and eating during these during during this when you're time. not drinking Stella Artois or pop chips which are always at right, festivals. The festivals. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to go back because like as soon as I finished film school I got the Telluride thing and I literally was going from festival. Like I did a month of staying home and like I was editing a lot of people's reels. I edited trailers for this foreign sales company that needed trailers. So you're making money as an editor. Yeah. But like freelance as freelance as it gets, I'm teaching at New York film Academy 
like two to sure. two month courses. The, the summer the summer camps. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm doing that. That's I'm excellent. I'm editing. I was um, so jealous of the kids who got to who like could afford New York. Yeah, Academy. yeah, yeah. I, I didn't enjoy my time there. I, I liked the kids. I, I liked the kids a lot. I did not enjoy being employed there at all. It's still, I think it's a pretty common and solid like post school mm-hmm. gig. Oh yeah, like, immediately. Yeah, it's yeah, and it was it was they didn't pay that badly. Mm-hmm. No, oh great, it was fine um, for me. It was better than freelance editing. Right which was very inconsistent. When I'm not doing one of those things, I'm going to film festivals with the short. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as that year out of school passes and I get girlfriend financed, I like such a small amount, but I salary myself the mm-hmm. smallest amount possible to still be able to pay my bills while through editing. Do you want to get real about this for a second? Actually? Yeah, sure. Because it's tricky, right? On a $150,000 movie. $150,000 movie. Every single cent really counts. Yeah. And so you, and, and it's your shot, right? Mm-hmm. You only get one first feature. So you got to get it all up, to be on the screen. Up on screen. Exactly. Exactly. So, so how do you, I don't want to know the number, but how do you figure out what that number is? I literally looked at what is what I need for rent and food through production and a couple months into post. And, and it's I, less than 10% of the budget. Yes. I'm living in a shitty little one bedroom in, in Koreatown. For very little amount of money, I have very few few expenses. And, and do your investors know that some of the money that they've given you to make this movie is going to pay your rent? They know that they're paying the director for the script and for a directing fee. And I that's mean, I, that, part of it. the thing is, it's like super legitimate. You should. The <laughs> problem is when you have to go edit or teach because you don't have money, and now the movie's suffering. Right. Well, I told them, I go, guys. Because, I mean, it was a bargain to even get what I got for directing and the script for the movie. But I'm like, look, I'm not trying to nickel and dime you on this. But if you want me to not have to take anything else while I'm Mm -hmm. shooting, prepping, and editing this movie, I just need enough to get through that. So it's almost, you're you're bargaining for commitment to the film, basically. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And do you have final say on the cut and everything at this point, even though you're not putting the money up? I found a way with the lawyer that I acquired from Telluride with my short. My lawyer and I found a way to demand final cut on the movie, correct? And and, and we had a good reason, though. And when you're at this sort of budget level, mm-hmm. like is that as big of a fight even, right? Like there, oh, you only have so much time. Final Cut was probably the biggest fight on this little film that I had. Like the nights of no sleep and having panic attacks was about, they were trying to take it away from me basically, right. yeah. And how do you afford to pay a lawyer on this budget? Oh man, <laughs> it's still something I feel really guilty about. <laughs> this poor, amazing lawyer did production legal on this movie for an unhealthily small amount of money so um, so because there's kind okay, of there's two different say, sort of gigs that a lawyer will take right production they, repre- legal. they they represent right. filmmakers right. or investors or producers or and do their deals or, right. and take a commission and, and they take a commission five percent five percent yes which, which you know when you're a big fancy lawyer and you're taking five percent of the tiny bit of money that Justin is making from this feature, 
it, they think of it as an investment in his future, Correct. right? Because they're going to put together deals together if he's doing great. Can blah, get blah, bigger blah. movies. Yeah, yeah. It, get it's a no rewrite, a good backs. rewrite job, or right. something like that. Production legal, that's nitty gritty. That's like work, work. You're doing every little contract for every location, every actor, insurance. It is a thankless job. I don't know who in their right mind does production legal for movies. So on Girlfriend, my personal lawyer was also production legal. And I think she saw it as an investment in me. And and I think she just felt bad for us because it was just a small movie. And she's like, sure, I'll do it. And God bless her for doing it. It was you know, thank, it's a thankless job. The production legal on the automatic Kate, which again, not a big budget movie, but significantly bigger than Girlfriend, she was given back end points mm-hmm. and uh, exec producer credit on the film for all of the work that she did. Oh, and cool. well deserved, by the way. Very well deserved for all the work that she did. And so are you guys making money on that movie or? I mean, remains to be seen. We've been selling territories. We sold Latin America this month for oh, a nice, a nice chunk of money. Uh, we sold South Korea. I mean, I've been to seven countries with this movie already. This will be the first month, April, that I spend 100 percent in Los Angeles since August. Yeah, that's wild. So I'm curious. So you had a movie at Telluride, a movie at Sundance, Toronto, South by. You must be. A millionaire now. Yeah, about totally. About to do the next Marvel movie. Well, I forgot to mention that between the first feature and the second feature, I did a lot of writing jobs, mm. a lot of paid rewrites and write for hire, and I directed a pilot of a web series Wait, which uh, for Fourth Wall Studios. Yes, yes, yes. And then just recently, uh, I directed another short for hire that the budget was like twice the size of my feature, and it was a four-day shoot. So what's the next move now? You have a movie in theaters. So are you working towards the next movie? Are you taking directing gigs? I've been always saying, look, I'm open to other people's work. If the right script comes along, that's not mine. Open, if the right open directing job comes. I just don't hold my breath because I feel like, okay, so this is going to open up the conversation of what is your dream as a director and what what do you want to do? And I have so many friends that I thought that I was similar to mm-hmm. in what I want to do with what my next films and my trajectory. And I'm going to answer the question, but I just, I thought that I was not alone in wanting to do a really small film and then have it be weird and unique and original and play a festival. And then just do a small film again, but just a little bigger, maybe a better actor or two and then play festivals again, but like maybe right. a better one. Right. And then maybe do one that's a little bit bigger next time. But the reason why I'm continuing to make them just a little bit bigger is I can continue to have final cut and Mm -hmm. creative control over the work and casting and the cut. And your scripts get to be a little weirder, Mm -hmm. a little more unique, the the sort of things that you've been talking about. The envelope pushing kind of things I haven't seen or trying to push taboos or no one told you, Hey, what if automatic hate wasn't about incest? Nobody nobody said that. Nobody said that. What if, what if they're just really good friends? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, But Um, if you look at a Tarantino or a Wes Anderson or Alexander Payne, they made their small films and then they made their big films and they still have their voice very much, you know, who knows if they have final cut or not. Right. So, but then, then I ran into friends and they're like, I can't wait to make a hundred thousand dollar indie and then make a studio film. And I was so blown away because that's like, 
for me, I could, that's, that's the complete antithesis of what I would want right now. Like if I could design my career, I would make films that get bigger in budget, but like at such a teeny step incremental pace, level, yeah. incremental level that I can maintain control until I can make maybe a five to eight or 10 to 12 with really awesome actors. And because I have a body of work before that has you basically, you, you want to be Terrence Malick is no. what you're saying. Or like, no. a, or like a Joe Swanberg. In terms, no. In terms no, 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 no. But in terms of like budget and like the ability to pull in a movie star to get, like you don't get to make an incest movie at $10 million unless Brad Pitt is the one. Right. But I wouldn't make the incest, the, the incest movie but immediately. I, but next. as an example, like as, as the envelope pushing kind of like out there, just showing Burnham, that you can do it. At a bigger level with bigger actors. Right. Okay, so here's an example. Sure, I, sure. I made a list. This so like, right. yeah. I think there's different. I think there's different career trajectories. You have like people that I I really admire, like Sean Baker. Sure, sure. Sean Baker has made five features, and they've all been exactly what he wanted to make. And right, and this getting, is this is Tangerine Sean. Tangerine Baker. Sean Baker, right? The movie shot on an iPhone that premiered at right. Sundance. And his films up until Tangerine never really broke through outside of the indie film circle. Tangerine is maybe his first film that every one of his films is great. They're, they're amazing, but they're just so uniquely his from his voice and uncompromising. Mm -hmm. And then Tangerine, the $100,000 film shot on iPhone is the one that breaks out. And now he's upping his budget on his next film, I think. To a and, Samsung Galaxy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ooh. No, but, 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 but the thing is, is he made five films exactly how he wanted to on limited budget with actors either he found nobody famous but all really good mm -hmm. so that's one way to go right and then you have like guys like jeremy saulnier who did blue ruin mm -hmm. and then he did green room he did a little bit bigger have you seen green room? i haven't but oh, i really yeah. want to and i heard it looks it, i heard it's great I, yeah I, okay so Sorry. he's his next movie is red wagon yes. yeah 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 he's <laughs> doing his own colors trilogy right yeah. the three colors yeah yes so he's a little bit more in line of what i guess i'm trying to do mm -hmm. in that like i haven't seen the films he made the film he made before blue ruin but blue ruin was his nobody yeah. famous i, I think that though actually the movie before that he doesn't he's kind of disowned yeah okay great yeah okay but yeah. like green room blue, is a blue step ruin, up in that yeah, there's yeah. patrick stewart anton right. yelkin and right. a lot of really good actors in that movie yeah. And it seems like it's still really his. It's mm -hmm. like there's it's something he wants to tell. So then there's people like Jeff Nichols mm -hmm. and Craig Zobel. Okay, mm -hmm. their first films are like micro. We're talking maybe under a hundred thousand dollar budget for their first two movies. And They're Jeff Nichols did Mud and but, okay, but Midnight he did Shock, Yeah, but he did Shotgun Stories, which was made for like maybe five figures. Right? So, so you're trying to get to your Midnight Special? Is that what you're saying? Or yeah, but my yeah. my version of it, yeah. right? So what like, did Craig Zobel do? Remind Craig Zobel did Great World of Sound, which was made on what looked like VHS. Okay, and then yeah. he made Compliance. An uncompromising, super cool Sundance movie, like Hitchcockian thriller. Mm -hmm. Like I love that movie. Okay, but that was one room basically, mm -hmm. and made for almost nothing. Mm -hmm. But by the scale of what Great World of Sound was made for, right? And then he makes Z for Zachariah with Margot sure. Robbie and um, Chris Pine, Chris Pine and Chiwetel Ejiofor, yeah. And again, he's upping his budget, he's upping his actors, but mm -hmm. he's still making his kind of movie, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. This is the trajectory I'm trying for. Got it. At Jeff Nichols goes from Shotgun Stories, okay? Then he goes to Take Shelter. Mm -hmm. And then he goes to Mud. 
and then he goes to midnight special. Got it. Yeah. This is this instead of going from hundred thousand dollar micro budget indie that breaks out at Toronto or South by and then twenty million dollar studio film mm-hmm. or even fifteen or whatever. I think you don't have any power if you make that jump. But mm-hmm. if you take the stairs up one by one, mm-hmm. I think you can keep your voice and I think you can keep your type of film, but you have to be ready to wait it out and figure out how to afford life in between. Because fuck. <laughs> I mean, I've <laughs> yeah. been doing it. I'm, I'm getting only, tired just thinking about this. Man. I'm only like, two movies in. <laughs> sure. I'm only two movies in. My third one is just getting set up now. We start casting this month. What sort of budget range is this next This one, one will be, I don't know yet, but it's going to be probably at least double what Automatic Kate was. So give me a range, though. So, like in the half million So range? Automatic Kate, oh, it'll be seven figures. Ha- oh, for sure. So I, like one to two or one, one point five? I think, I, I don't know, because I honestly haven't had the conversation with the financiers. Mm-hmm. But just your gut as well. My as gut is like, I think if, on the low end too, maybe. But, okay, but, yeah, yeah. but And Automatic Kate was under one, and Girlfriend was 150. Oh, Girlfriend was the 150. Yeah. Correct. Because I think about, you know, we're all getting a little older, right? Yes. We're all in our thirties. Mm-hmm. The idea of making like a like a hundred thousand dollar feature just it's it's exhausting. A nightmare. <laughs> however, however, it's my advice to this day to anyone trying to make their first feature. Oh yeah, to, to, no, just if you're twenty two years old, or if you're. Well, look, I, I haven't shot a feature before, right? I would for make sure. one for a hundred thousand dollars. I would do it. I do it, Matt. I would yeah. do it. Do it on your own terms, on your own schedule. Sure. And maybe it's something that should be shootable for a hundred thousand. It should be. It should be in this room again, <laughs> right? Well, I mean, I think the question is: Are you the auteur or are you the journeyman? Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah the craftsman. Yeah. yeah. The well, craftsman. Well, yeah. Look. And, okay. And, There's people like Sean Baker who make uniquely films their own, and then one breaks out, and then they can kind of do whatever they want in in their weird way, and they're just given that pass because they're brilliant, like Sean right. Baker's. Jeremy Saulnier, same deal. Like he had the breakout of Blue Ruin, but then there are people like Jeff Nichols and Greg Sobel who have been very smart in going a little bit bigger. A little mm-hmm. bit better actor, not better, but maybe more known. Let's right, right. not let's not say that because right. Michael Shannon was Michael Shannon was in his first film. So okay. yeah, and, there you go. But now he's got Matthew McConaughey now, and Adam Reese Driver Witherspoon. And, yeah, yes. Okay, so a little bit bigger, bigger and more visible actor. A little bit bigger budget, right? The ideas and the the the, the risk taking mm-hmm. still the same, but they're mm-hmm. just going a little bit bigger. There's that guy. Then there's the guys like Linklater and Soderbergh who do sure. the little movie for them and the big movie for everybody. Right. The one for me, one for them thing. I, right? You know, the thing about the one for me, one for them thing, though, is that I think they're all for them. Yeah, I don't think oh, Steven yeah. Soderbergh, like Steven yeah, Soderbergh loves the Yeah, but there's like the Girlfriend Experience versus Ocean's Eleven. I mean, one uh, sure, is watchable. Sure. <laughs> there's right. Bubble. There's Bubble. <laughs> yeah, and but then there's Ocean's Eleven. I, I, yeah. I think I would argue, because, you know, I think that in this room, right, like, Justin, you're super duper indie. Oren, you love like popcorn movies. And I kind of like bounce in between, right? And I love the fuck out of both plenty of like Soderbergh's like weirder movies. And Ocean's Eleven for sure, and Linklater is even easier, right? But like, Linklater's I, like I don't know. There's a Linklater movie I don't like. Yeah, Linklater. Did you like School of Rock? Yeah. Oh, yeah. How course. about Bad News Bears remake? Ooh, Bad News Bears. <laughs> Bad News Bears. <laughs> you found it. You found it. But still, like the point stands, though. Like you know, he you, did um, that animated movie, right? Uh, Waking, Waking Life. There, yeah. Well, there's Waking Life and there's Bad News Bears, and they're so different, right? Yeah. And then there's the David Gordon Green. You do six micro indies, and then you do your Royal um, Highness or whatever. What do we, no, uh, the, he what did was Pineapple, the one? Express Pineapple Express, Express. Yeah, and then, yeah. then yeah. he did all these big budget. 
you know, so you get those. And then there's David Gordon Green's an anomaly, though. Like, yeah. I, I think that guy. I think what happened was he showed Judd Apatow his commercials, which were all really funny, and that's how he got Pineapple uh, Express. And was like, interesting. I have a kid, I want to start yeah, making yeah. lots of money. And, and that's really kind of what I'm getting at. It's like at a certain point, like I want to buy a house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. I look at like, I mean. They might be sellouts for all of us, but like the Mark Webb or the Colin Trevorrow or that guy that just did 10 Cloverfield Lane, um, Trachtenberg, Michael oh, Trachtenberg, yeah. or no. Dan Trachtenberg, whatever There's, his name is. Everyone's got their own path yeah. and trajectory. I'm I, just think, saying. I think Mark Webb is actually really true to his voice. It's just that his voice is very commercial. Right. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's a difference all. between 500 Days of Summer and Spider-Man, you yeah, know, but, in terms of Sure. Wow, this is a movie I haven't seen before, and wow, this is exactly the movie I've seen a hundred times. <laughs> but I think if you look at some of his early, this yeah, is, yeah, tangent. But if you look at Mark Webb's early music videos, you see the connection between all of those other pieces for sure. Right. So if I can just tell you what the goal is, if you take the Jeff Nichols Craig Zobel model, mm-hmm. it's kind of that mm-hmm. where I would ease my way into making films that were five million. 10 million right. with really good cast members. And how long does that take you? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's the next one. Maybe maybe after the next one I get offered somebody else's script that I can make my own and then that's it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I want to stay available and open to those things, but I also want to have the ability to just kind of be some hybrid between what Mike Nichols was doing in the 70s and Lars von Trier. <laughs> and are you making time to write? Yeah, I always write. Yeah. Right. So, Justin, we have what, what's called unpaid endorsements. Unpaid endorsements. So, yeah. So, uh, maybe I'll take the lead. Yeah. Sure. Cool. So, this week, I have two unpaid endorsements. Mm. Um, rule breaker. Rule breaker, I know, but it kind of, they stack on top of one another. One is a podcast that I'm recommending to you specifically, Oren, but I think our listeners will love it as well. Imaginary World. Do you guys know this podcast? No, I've heard of it, I think. It's so good. It's nice and short. They're like 20-minute episodes, but it's basically, you know, the host kind of dissects different parts of storytelling and fantasy, basically. So I think the the line is like, imaginary worlds and why we suspend our disbelief or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I've just been binging them. I've been listening to them nonstop. You know, he's a huge nerd. It's it's sort of like having a great conversation about nerdiness in a really intelligent and thoughtful way. So it's got a little bit of radio documentary to it, a lot of interviews, but they have episodes on like, you know, why playing Dungeons and Dragons as a kid was essential for a ton of sci-fi writers or, you know, the impact of Princess Leia's bikini on feminism. You know, like all sorts of stuff like that. It's really fantastic. Imaginary worlds. That's the first one. And the second one, just a couple weekends ago, WonderCon was here in LA. That's a big comic book convention. And I went to uh, CCC, the uh, Comic Creators Connection, which is like speed dating for writers and artists. So a bunch of different writers and a bunch of different artists all kind of got lined up. And every 10 minutes, a bell would ring and we would shuffle down to the next station and meet each other, talk to each other, pitch each other story ideas. And it was really incredible, you know, and it's sort of, you know, the comic book conventions, I think, you know, people paid a lot of attention to the crowds and all of that stuff, but there's still a ton of really great artist-driven aspects to it. And so in addition to just going to your local comic book convention and like meeting people who are interested in your fellow art or in art, 
I think that it really spoke to the thing that we talk about on the podcast all the time about seeking out like-minded people, finding your tribe, and then finding ways to collaborate with them. So it was an example where, you know, I've wanted to do this for a long time. I stepped out of my comfort zone and had a really, really wonderful time doing it. So I totally recommend seeking out other artists in that way. Those are my endorsements. All right. Cool. Well, I'm, act- I'm actually going to copy your format. Exactly. So my podcast is a podcast, probably like a top 10 podcast. Probably everybody knows about it. But it's like one of my favorites because it's only 20-minute episodes, very much unlike this episode. And it's called Planet Money. And it's basically about how business affects every part of our lives, you know, like our match.com profile and like doing studies on like what type of people get more clicks or I just listened to one today about how unbundling our cable is actually really bad for the availability of content and the type of content that we see, like not having 500 channels, even if you only watch five channels is making everyone suffer. So it's just like, if you're, I don't know, just looking to listen to stuff that's not exactly about what we do but kind of can inspire really interesting ideas and conversations. Planet Money is like one of my favorite podcasts. And then um, the second thing, it's also copying your phone, is about you know where I met Justin and where Matt's been to also is we have this director's group that was actually set up by Eric Kissack, who we've had on the podcast before, and Tim Nakashi is part of it. And we have a bunch of directors that come and just talk about directing and ask questions about their, you know, whatever is going on with them. And I think, you know, whether you live in L.A. or anywhere, it's just like directors get to meet each other and interact with each other so seldomly. I mean, unless you're in film school, I guess. Um, or, or you have a podcast about it. Or you have a yeah. podcast about it. That it's like, you know, it's fun. I, I think, you know, Matt just had a f- director friend of his, Andrew, email me the other day to ask me some question. We're going to meet up for coffee just to, you know, it's just ha- nice to meet other directors and see what everyone else is doing and just... You know, sometimes when you're in a rut, it's just like good to be like, oh, you know, Justin actually like it. It, it um, replicates the school environment that you desperately miss after you're out of film school, where you are just around a bunch of people working on their shit, and you're working on yours, and you can kind of commiserate and sure. trade notes and say, oh, I know this actor, and hold each other accountable, and yeah, I did that once with. Um, two other filmmakers from USC actually who I'm helping kind of raise money for one of their little indies right now and we did this thing where every Monday night we'd go drink somewhere and literally just say bring me your problems mm-hmm. Are, you're trying to cast that role I'm trying to find $25,000 for this and we just literally spit out what we knew it was kind of like what we had at we had every Wednesday at like 1pm at UCLA Film School we did we have something called I forget what it was called. It was just where we'd all sit and say, I need this location. Who knows where I can, you know, but it's more real world problem. Yeah. (laughs) Facebook, but in real life, Mm -hmm. which is much more fun, I think. Yeah. Well, cool. Yeah. I mean, so if you know a filmmaker, talk to them. (laughs) I guess since I have a few recommendations, I have a a book, I have an album that I've been listening to and I, uh, not a movie, but like a television show to watch. Sure. How about that? So Perfect. do those, one yeah. of each. So the book is, it's actually just the first like 30 pages of, do you guys know the filmmaker Alexander McKendrick? He did The Sweet Smell of Success, mm-hmm. Lady yeah, Killers. Yeah, yeah. So he, right before he died, he spent his last years teaching at CalArts. And his students put together, without him knowing, the notes from all of his lectures and they published it into a book. And anytime anyone asks me if there was one book you could take with you about filmmaking, 
other than people always using like, oh, notes on the cinematographer, which is beautiful, but it's all very philosophical, just like about what is a short film, what is a feature film, what is this, what is that. I always recommend this book, and it's not a book, it's a compiling of all of his students' notes. His like He had a cult of followers at CalArts. And whatever you think about the guy's movies, he was a fantastic Sweet teacher. smell of success is yeah. super dope. So. All right. So <laughs> his, the first 40 pages of this book called On Filmmaking by Alexander McKendrick are the most helpful 30 or 40 pages on filmmaking that I've ever read, whether it's about writing. He has this great chapter called Rules for the Screenwriter's Wall. He has one about like, here's all the cliches that film students say that are complete bullshit. It's just... <laughs> And the forward is by Martin Scorsese, so he's got some followers that are pretty sure, legit. Sure. Anyway, that would be a book that I'd highly recommend. Um, it used to be hard to find, but they just reprinted it, so it's around. Look for it on Amazon, easy to find. That would be the book. The music, this is because I've gone deep into the depths of learning about every single pop star out in the country right now because of research. My new film, my feature that I'm about to start casting is about the world of famous singer-songwriters and pop stars. And so in plunging in and learning about literally everyone in existence and listening to all this music, I came across this singer-songwriter who I'm probably going to seem completely out of touch because she's super famous, but... Taylor Swift. Yeah, this. have you heard of her? No. 1989. Um, <laughs> awesome it's, this, it's this singer named Halsey, H-A-L-S-E-Y. I'm sure everyone who is under 25 that's listening to this, if you have any of those people, are rolling their eyes at me. We have a handful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She's got a few singles. The one that I heard first was called Ghost, but it, it, she is amazing, and I'm just into her album right now. So I would say check it out. Sweet. The new Rihanna is pretty good, too. <laughs> I don't go. think she needs any endorsements, though. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the thing I've been watching, because I've just been on art film overload, there's this really cool, I'm sure you've seen it already, this documentary now thing that's sure. on with Fred Armisen and um, uh, Bill Hader. They basically take each episode to spoof a famous documentary. Yeah, I, I love that you're like, oh, I'm so overloaded with indie films. I better watch this Obscure, <laughs> obscure thing that basically makes fun of indie films. <laughs> <Makes fun. laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'm watching it with my girlfriend this hey, what's weekend. What's the show called? It's called Documentary Now. It is if a, you're like down for some dope Grey Gardens jokes. Oh no no no! <laughs> here's the, here's the thing that's funny, right? So I'm watching it to get out of my rut of watching. Like there's like a, a sanction now in my apartment. I can only watch things with subtitles when Sarah's not around because she's sick of. She just I watch too many foreign films. All right, so we watch sit down to watch, oh, it's Bill Hader and Fred Armisen. Let's watch it. And it happens to be just spoofing all of these very obscure... All, all the movies that you're taking a break exactly. from. <laughs> but here's the thing. But it's Bill Hader and Fred Armisen. And like Seth Meyers, I think, is a writer on it. But it's documentary now with like an exclamation point. Mm -hmm. And we're sitting there watching them spoof Grey Gardens, Nanak of the North. These are things you might only watch if you went to film school. The Thin Blue Line. And we pause it. My girlfriend looks at me and goes, this series is a series of in-jokes for like 10 people. Yeah. And I'm one of those 10 people. Yeah. If you like obscure documentaries and want to see Bill Hader and Fred Armisen do a bunch of in-jokes about these really tiny art film documentaries, it's streaming on Netflix. And I binged it in a day and 
laughed so hard all the way through. <laughs> I would highly recommend, especially the Grey Gardens one and the Nanook of the North one. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Those are my recommendations. Awesome. And cool. if people want to find you or your movie, what where do they go? Yeah, so because the film's still out in theaters, the distributor is posting all of our theatrical release information on the automatichate.com. So that's the T H E Automatic Hate H A T E dot com. And we have a Facebook and a Twitter that you can just find by you know, searching for that name in the search engine. And I think for the movie, those would be the things. I, I have a Twitter technically and a Facebook, but I don't really like try not to do the, uh, it won't be as up the to date. It, well, I mean, I'll retweet stuff, but you know, if you want to know where the movies come or when we're coming out on iTunes or, or VOD, you should just follow those on the social media. Yeah. Okay, cool. Cool. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to find out more about the show, you can follow us at Just Shoot It Pod or visit us online at JustShootItPodcast.com. I'm Matt Enlow, at Mr. Matt Enlow. And I'm at Smitey Pileg. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. And email us some questions and feedback, and we love it all. We love it all. This episode was edited by Eric Cropeau. Thanks, Eric. And music was by Steve Combs. Take it away, Steve. See ya. Like, I can see your front door from mine. I, If you ever borrow anything, it, I know where it is. It's okay. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of, can I borrow? You have Inside Lewin Davis. I do. The yeah. Criterion. Yeah, I'll mm. take it. Um, I also still have your entire Battlestar Galactica. I've had it for like three years, by the way. I'm sorry about that. I forgot all about that. That's I, Well, good. I was thinking about rewatching it. Too. Well, if you were thinking that it was stolen, it's not. It's sitting um, on Sarah and I's pile of to watch. <laughs> to watch.